a delight it must be uh, to your to your ears to hear your your people right now singing songs of how faithful you are and hey God if it wasn't for Jesus our our souls would not be well within us we would have no reason for security in this life or in the life to come uh, most substantially so we thank you that because of Jesus that we can know that we are accepted in your sight not by any work of our own but because of his perfection and I pray that for anyone in this room that even this day comes in with a certain instability in their heart as to whether or not they're they're part of your family whether or not they know you then I pray that through Christ this moment through your spirit through your word, that you'd penetrate their hearts and give them a heart of flesh where they have a heart of stone. Give them eyes to see uh, the beauty and the wonder um, of Jesus and his sacrifice and his resurrection. We thank you today that we have life. Uh, Thank you that your word is living and active and able right now to to shape us and mold us and judge us and, um, and to make us more like Christ. And I pray that you do just that. Help us to be Humble and hungry as we go to your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Well, good morning. Good to see everybody. Um, it's great to be with you. My name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a delight to be able to be with you and open God's word with you. We're going to go to Acts chapter 18. It's where we'll be this morning. You can grab a Bible. Uh, we'll have most of the verses up here on the TVs, but we have uh, Bibles in the front of you there. If you don't have a Bible of your own, feel free to take that home with you. If you don't have one with you, you can grab one of those and follow along. If you're going to use your phone, I'm just going to trust you're not on Instagram, that you're listening to God's Word, all right? Uh, so let's go there, uh, Acts chapter 18. Before we jump in, let me just kind of give a little bit of a sweeping context for this book. So uh, if you haven't been with us, we're, we study verse by verse through books of the Bible. So we're in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is really the story of the birth and the spread of the church, the local church, how the gospel went forward after Jesus uh, died and rose and ascended to be with the Father. So at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus, before he ascends to go be with the Father, basically makes a proclamation to his people. He makes a promise and gives them a responsibility all wrapped in one. And they ask about the question like, hey, is this the moment where you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, hey, I, that's not for you to know, but here's what you should know, that you're going to receive power from me. And that power is going to enable you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the remotest part of the earth. And that statement, that mission, that responsibility forms the framework of the whole book. So what happens from that point on is that through the preaching, the witnessing, as it were, of faithful men and women of God, the, the gospel of Jesus, the, the gospel, the good news that Jesus died in the place of sinners, and he rose from the grave victorious, and in him there's life, that that news is coming now through messengers, what the Bible calls witnesses. And what do witnesses do? Well, they testify. They testify to what they've seen and heard. And so we see that in Peter and in Paul and all these various people that God has called to himself. They now are sent out to make much of Jesus in the world. And so last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 18. And Paul, who used to be a persecutor of Christians, has become a Christian. He's now the central figure for the rest of the book of Acts. And he's going on these missionary journeys, preaching Jesus, visiting churches. And in chapter 18, he goes to Corinth. We talked last week about Corinth was a godless place. It's kind of like Las Vegas on steroids in the old world. It was a godless place, but a church has started there. And so in Corinth, 
Paul goes in, he preaches, he's a Jewish man who's come to faith, so he's a Jewish Christian, it kind of blows categories, right? He's a Jewish Christian, he goes into the synagogue to preach Jesus, and they resist his message. So he says, hey, I'm gonna turn to the Gentiles instead. There's a little bit of persecution, but God rescues and actually opens up a platform for him through this remarkable conversion of Crispus, who was the kind of overseer of the synagogue, and so ministry happens in Corinth. He's there for a year and a half. And so what's going to happen next? He's going to turn now. He's going to go to a different place. He's going to turn, and he's going to move to a different station. And that's where we'll pick up in verse 18, in, in chapter 18. Let's read it together. We'll read the first five verses, 18 through 23. This is God's word. In verse 18, chapter 18, this is what it says. It says, after this, after being in Corinth, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Centria, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so one, thing, one of the things I've kind of challenged us with as we've read through this book, uh, as we go through the book of Acts, it's a historical book and it's a narrative book. So it tells us history, not just biblical history, but world history. And so it's easy to kind of detach yourself from what's being said in these stories and these verses we have to work really hard not to just see this as like a story of some, something, someplace, someone who once was and detach it from our own lives because there's something in this for us. And you may not know this. If you're a Christian this morning, that you now are in the long line of witnesses who spread the good news of Jesus on this world before he returns. That's your responsibility. It's my responsibility. Just like Paul, just like Apollos, who we'll read about this morning, we are those witnesses. We looked at last week. There's this call to just stay faithful. Like keep laboring, like keep planting, keep watering. God is always doing more than what we can see. And he's the one that ultimately will cause the growth. But he's enlisted and enabled his people to be about his business and to spread the good news of Jesus throughout the land. So Paul stays in Corinth about a year and a half. He meets this really strategic couple, Priscilla and Aquila. They become to him really significant friends. They seemingly lay, lay their lives down for him, put themselves in harm's way for his ministry. And then so Paul goes on this massive missionary journey. And I don't have a map. I looked for a good one to put on the TV, but it's just not, there's not a good choice out there. But if you can picture the Mediterranean, Paul's missionary journeys, there's, there's three of them usually that are noted, are kind of this massive circle around the Mediterranean. So we see him in Corinth, we see him in Athens, he's all the way over in, in Italy, um, and in Greece, and we see him there in Corinth, and now he's going to turn and go to this city called Centria, which is kind of a coastal city on the other side of the Aegean Sea from Ephesus. So he's getting ready to get in a boat and go to Ephesus. This is real geography, but he goes to Centria, and there's this weird comment made that he made a vow and he had to cut his hair. So we got to pause for a minute because I want to just leave it there and actually understand what this is all about. Go, just look at, look at the verse with me in verse 18. It says, at Centria he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. So what is, what is this bizarre statement all about? So Jewish culture. So back in Numbers chapter 6, an Old Testament, 
So as, as a Jewish man, there was, there was this Nazarite vow that you could make. And so in the Nazarite vow, it was the essence of it was to set yourself apart for the purposes of God, to consecrate yourself for the work of God. And so what would happen in the Nazarite vow is a man would grow his hair really long. He wouldn't drink any hard drink, alcohol, couldn't be around dead things. You read it, it's a little bit, it seems a little bit bizarre. It actually is for our time, but had a purpose to set someone apart for God. And so Paul actually has this vow seemingly that he's undertaken. And so he's, and what you would do in this vow is at the, the time that's determined when the vow is over, you would actually cut your hair, which had been growing out, You'd take your hair, you'd offer it up as, a, as an offering in the temple in Jerusalem. I know, it seems kind of bizarre. But just remember the heart of it is that you're setting yourself apart for the purposes of God. And what's really interesting about this is Paul is a Christian now. He's, he's Jewish by upbringing and culture, but he's a Christian. He's believed in Jesus. There's a supernatural conversion. Christ appears to him, radically changes him. He used to murder Christians. Now he is one. He's preaching throughout the land. People are like, isn't this the guy who used to put us in prison and persecute us? Yeah, but now he's a Jesus lover. So this guy now, he's got a unique Jewish culture, and it seemed like Paul didn't have any trouble even entering into to Jewish things, as it were, if it meant that it was going to be a fruitful platform to minister to Jews because he loved the Jewish people. He longed for them to come to faith. So seemingly, at least in part because he wanted to set himself apart for God and also because he wanted to minister to the Jews and even relate to the law in such a way as to make that fruitful. We see it a little bit later in Acts chapter 21. Because James, when, when Paul goes to Jerusalem, James says, hey, there's these four guys who are entered into a vow. Why don't you join them? To kind of demonstrate that he's not against the Jews. And so Paul does. But he didn't see it as disconnected from the gospel. He just saw it as a way in which to relate to the Jews and a way to be fruitful in his message that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. So he enters into this vow, he shaves his head, and now he's going from Centria to Ephesus. So they, they get in the boat, as it were, and they travel to Ephesus, this other city. We'll see it more next week. Ephesus was a crazy place, just like Corinth. The whole city was built around um, worship to the goddess Artemis, this like sex goddess. It was a godless place, just like Corinth. Just like the Lord to plant a church in a place like that. So we'll see that next week. There's a whole book in the New Testament to the church in Ephesus. But this is what it looks like. So they get to Ephesus. They get off the boat quite literally. And Paul looks at Priscilla and Aquila, this special friendship. He's like, hey, why don't you all stay here? And he goes and does what he always does. He goes into the synagogue to tell them about Jesus. It'd be something like this. In the synagogue, they're constantly reading the Old Testament. So Paul steps in to preach. He went with the focus to preach to these Jews in the synagogue. And he essentially would do this. He'd, he'd look at the Old Testament and say, everything that you're looking for is found in Jesus. Everything that you're hearing about, all the whispers from the Old Testament about this promised Messiah that's going to right everything that's wrong with man and reconcile man to God, everything you're looking for is found in Christ. He's the Messiah. That's what his preaching was in the synagogue. And so he goes into the synagogue in Ephesus, and they seem to respond favorably. But it's notable for us when we think about Paul. Like, not only was he captivated with the message of the gospel, but he loved the Jewish people. And this whole vow thing, just a, a quick note. Some of you heard this verse before. Like, Paul wasn't like a spiritual chameleon. He just kind of came, became whatever someone was. 
But there's a way in which, like even as it relates to Jew and Gentile, so Jew and then non-Jew, that he was able to navigate in both terrains in such a way that he might win people from every category and land. And he talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let me read a few verses. So just hear his heart for the Jewish people. He says, for, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Keep that statement in mind, that I might win more of them, win them to Christ. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. He's like, I'm still rescued from the constraint of the law. I'm still in Christ, but I do that that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, meaning I'm not just going to go out sinning just to become like people who are sinning, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. It's the third time he said that. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. And he's summarized it this way. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them and its blessings. Now, I don't know if you know you might be this person. You probably know someone this way. There's some people in this world, maybe in your life, that they love something so much. It's like they, they not only just love it, they make it their crusade to make everybody else love it. I mean, maybe it's like Ikea. Any Ikea fans in here? I've got a friend who loves In-N-Out Burger. Like wherever he travels and there's an In-N-Out, it's like priority number one. Like double-double, milkshake. Like he'll give you the whole spiel. And like he's salivating and like excited all at the same time. Any In-N-Out fans in here? Mostly in California? Okay. I had it one time, and it's, it's a good burger, but I'm not, like, converted to in and outism. It's not me. But some people are captivated by certain things. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe the person that comes to mind when you think about that. But Paul was captivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And wherever he went, he was occupied with telling people that Jesus was the Christ. So he goes into the synagogue, and God grants him favor. It was like the in and out at the time, right? There's this zealous compassion that I might win more, that I might save some. And, and in Corinth, he turned away from the Jews, but seemingly not completely because he continues to preach in the synagogues boldly, teaching them that, hey, everything you're looking for, all that you're reading, it's found in Jesus. Turn to him. But he has this zealous compassion, so much so, it's good for us to read this because I think we have to do assessment in our own hearts as to how do we, like, do we have compassion for people without Jesus? Like, if we really believe this, if we believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven, the only way to know God is through Jesus Christ, do we feel a gravity and compassion for those who don't know that message? I'm speaking in my own heart just as much as I'm speaking to you. But listen to Paul's words as he speaks about the Jews in Romans chapter 9, he's kind of contemplating the fact that by and large the Jews have rejected Jesus. So he's kind of asking the question, so, so what of the Jews then? And this is part of what he says, but he kind of bears his heart about his heart for the Jews. In Romans 9, 1 through 3, he says this. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm being genuine here. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And so he's, he's in sorrow, he has ang anguish in his heart, and listen to this next statement. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers and my kinsmen according to the flesh. So let me reduce this down. Here's essentially what Paul is saying. I would give up my own salvation 
if it meant the salvation of the Jews. I would, I would, I would be a curse before God. I would give up everything I know, all the glory that I see in Christ. I would give it up if it meant the conversion of my kinsmen, my brothers, the Jewish people. It's remarkable. And so I'm not saying you have to leave this place and be like, hey, I'll give up my salvation if everybody just believes. I think we should have that heart, but we should at least absorb like the, the earnestness for the salvation of other people if we believe what we believe. Amen? Come on, y'all. Amen? There's an earnestness. Like, I will, I will, I'll go to hell if it means everybody goes to heaven. That's remarkable. It's not just hyperbole. I believe this so much. I long for people to come to know him that I I'd even would give up my own salvation. I think the question then becomes, do we feel even just like a remote like peace of that kind of earnestness? When Jesus looked out on the masses of people in his ministry, one of the things we see is he looked out on the masses and he had compassion on them. Why? Because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. His heart was moved with compassion. I think just real simply, we need to ask ourselves, are we moved with compassion toward people who don't know Jesus Christ? Like we truly believe that he is the solution for the souls of men. I know I'm challenged by that and I'm certain probably most of us should be. But Paul had a, a, a zealous compassion for the Jews. And so he leaves Ephesus. They, they respond to his message favorably. But because he's got a V-line for Jerusalem, uh, he doesn't stay. They want him to stay longer. They respond to the message. And he's like, I'm not going to stay, but if God wills, then I'll come back. It's a good way to make decisions. If the Lord wants me to come back, then I'll, then I'll be here. And sure enough, he'll end up back there. And significant ministry. He stays there longer than any other city. Three years, ultimately, he goes back to Ephesus. But you can picture him taking a boat all the way from Ephesus, all the way across the Mediterranean to the east side of the Mediterranean, close to Jerusalem. He lands in Caesarea comes on land, he goes to the church in Jerusalem, which was the, the central Jewish church in the first century Christian church. Then he makes a loop up to Antioch, which is the central non-Jewish church. So he's making this the rounds. And after he goes to those two, he kind of loops up through Phrygia and, and Philippi. And he, and he strengthens the disciples and there's, there's this interconnectedness that's hard to avoid. He's strengthening all of God's people. And these churches, just like individual Christians, need consistent support and encouragement to remain faithful to God. So maybe to say it this way, for Paul, it wasn't enough just to merely travel to cities and to see people raise their hands. I believe. And that was good. But he went back around. He sent letters. The whole New Testament, his writings, is given to encouraging and circulating letters to strengthen the faith of those who initially responded in favor and believed in Christ. So he travels around and he feels accountable for their spiritual health. And having believed in Jesus, the people of God need to be strengthened in their faith. You see this in a couple different places. Well, many others. There's a couple... Acts 14, 22, Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 15, 32, and Judas and Silas encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. I want you to use your imagination for a minute. I want to ask you if you can see this take place. So Paul was a real man. 
Jewish man, hated Christians, came to faith in Jesus. Now he's a Jesus lover and wants to make Jesus known everywhere. And, there's, and he has sown a remarkable seed around the Mediterranean, right? There's people that have believed. And so now he's going to these churches. It is very much, I would assume, looks something like him coming into the church, sitting down, a stool or a chair, and having a conversation with God's people. And it may have sounded something like, like, how are you doing since the last time I saw you? He's still loving Jesus? He's still precious to you? You still believe the things that I delivered to you the last time, those things of first importance, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and raised on the third day? In a, like, do you still believe that? You can almost picture him like a, like a gardener, like someone tending to a plant. Some of you are into gardening. Might, this might resonate with you, but the picture I think is helpful. It's like you sit down next to a plant you're trying to cultivate and help it grow, right? And so there's many things that you're going to do. Like you're going to look at it, you're going to pick off things that shouldn't be there, things that are dead, like the old you. We see that in the Christian life. Put away the old you and put on the new. There's a cultivating and a protecting element of picking off dead things, pulling up weeds that are competing for the nutrients for that plant, right? You might grab extra soil and fertilizer and kind of protect the roots and Help it build up and become strong. It's much like what this work is like for Paul with these Christians. And you see this in different ways in his letters in the New Testament, like to Philippi, Church of, the book of Philippians. He writes this book, and it's notable how much he sees the grace of God in this church. It sounds a lot like, thank you so much for loving me so well. Like you participated in my support. He gives them encouragement. He's like, just excel still more. Like what God started in you, he's going to complete. Operating in humility with one another. Keep loving Jesus, right? So I see God's grace in your life. But then when you get to Galatians, he says things like, you foolish Galatians. Like who has bewitched you that you've left Christ and trusted now in your flesh? Are you so foolish to, to think that what began in the spirit is going to be perfected by your own works? That's the kind of exhortation he gives to this other church, and both are necessary. I think we know that in our own lives, from our parents or from good friends. Like, we need those who say, you know what, Mike, I see the grace of God in your life. Michael, I see the grace of God in your life, and I praise God for it. And I want, you to, I want to encourage you to excel still more. Like, keep loving Jesus. Like, we need that. We all need that kind of encouragement. But we also need someone to look us in the eyes and say, you fool. You foolish man. Put away those things. Uproot those things that are competing for the life that you have in Jesus. Put them away. They're not you anymore. They don't belong to the new man. Like, we need those challenges as well. And it seems that Paul was dedicated to providing that kind of encouragement and shepherding and accountability to the people of God. And so let me just ask us, like are we accountable to anyone in that type of way? Is there anyone that we can sit across the table from that can look at our lives and, and help us evaluate how we're doing in our relationship with God? Help us see the things that we're blind to, that left to ourselves we will become hardened to. It's the nature of sin. And you'll hear us say this time and time again. You might get tired of hearing it, but I, I really don't care, frankly. 
because the Bible trumpets this. is like God has designed us to need one another. There will never be a moment in your life where you don't need the presence of other believers in your life to help you grow. Never. It will not happen. Notably, we're going to even be in heaven with one another, not isolated on a cloud with Cupid wings and a bow and arrow. Like we're going to be with each other, the people of God, the family of God, the city of God, notably worshiping the one true God together. Community is even present in heaven. So just hear me when I say this. Like you're not going to be the one exception in life. It's going to excel in the Christian life on your own. It will not happen because God has not designed us to function that way. For his glory and for our blessing, he's made us to need one another. We need ongoing connection and exhortation and encouragement. Every Christian needs to be accountable and is dependent for the, on the gifts and, and wisdom of other people for health. And you see that in Paul as he visits these churches, strengthening the disciples. Let's pick up in verse 24 and read about another, another witness, a man named Apollos. Verse 24 says this. We'll read this to the end of the chapter. It says, Now a Jew named Apollos a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that's back to Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Okay, we'll finish off looking at Apollos' life and this brief section that's really meaty. By all accounts, Apollos was a remarkable guy. So he's from Alexandria, which is in Egypt. Alexandria was a place renowned for knowledge. Like the Greek Old Testament was written there. The Septuagint was written in Alexandria. There's a number of philosophers and academics that came out of Alexandria in this season in history. And so Apollos was this unique blend of Greek and Hebrew learning. He was a very capable man. And he was eloquent. Like he knew how to say things and he was competent. He knew what to say. That's a powerful combination. He spoke well, and he spoke rightly in many ways. So he was capable and competent. So he was instructed in the ways of the Lord as well. He's fervent in spirit. He was energetic. He was equipped. He had a zeal for the things he was speaking about. So he's, he's competent, he's eloquent, and he's energetic. But there's some things that weren't quite fully formed. He had a fervency in spirit, but he just partly knew some of the things he was preaching about. So he only knew the gospel, or I'm sorry, the, the baptism of John, which we're going to see a little more fully next week because the same thing was present in the church in Ephesus. So the picture is this John the baptism, John the baptism, John the Baptist in the gospels was a forerunner for Jesus. So he came and Everything he did was intended to point to Jesus. He was a forerunner. So even his baptism, which was a baptism for repentance of sins, was, was to point people to Jesus. So when Jesus comes on the scene, it's seemingly everything that John does is say, it's not about me, it's about him. 
When he sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His disciples start being concerned, like, hey, everybody's going to Jesus to get baptized. What are we going to do about this? And John's like, let him increase and let me decrease. So even his baptism, which apparently Apollos, Apollos only knew of John's baptism, was intended to point to Jesus. There's something in here that I feel compelled to, to share. That there's a way in which, like in our lives, maybe in how you've been brought up, spiritually speaking or otherwise, maybe particularly in your spiritual understanding, is like we may feel like we have a good understanding. We might possess everything that we think we need. But if you get, get it wrong about Jesus, it doesn't much matter what you get right. If you get it wrong about Christ, it doesn't really matter all the other things you might have right, generally speaking. And there was a way in which Apollos' understanding of the gospel wasn't fully formed. But he was, he was preaching, like he was boldly preaching. He got up in the synagogue, much like Paul did. He started preaching in the synagogue. And so here's the picture. Priscilla and Aquila came on the boat with Paul over to Ephesus. Paul's preaching in the synagogue. And so they're sitting in the synagogue. They don't know Apollos, apparently. Apollos starts preaching. They hear him. They take it in. And they hear something that concerned them, something that wasn't fully formed or fully informed. So they take him aside, seemingly in private notably in private, and they instruct him. They help him to understand things more fully, more accurately. They explain to him the way of God more accurately. Verse 26. There's a couple things about this. One is just with Priscilla and Aquila. It's notable they didn't stand up in the synagogue and rebuke Apollos publicly right then. There might be some things. I suppose there's some things I could preach up here that you would be right to stand up and start screaming if it's a subtle thing about baptism, probably would be wiser done in private. You see that pattern in Scripture. as When believers encounter one another doing certain things that are wrong, according to Scripture, believing certain things that are wrong. In Matthew chapter 18, there's this progression of, of going to someone firstly one-on-one -on -one and in private. Galatians chapter 6 says the same thing. Brothers and sisters, if you see another brother or sister in sin, you who are spiritual at that moment, you have your spiritual senses kind of keen to the, the issue, then you go to them to restore them. But you go with a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself first so that you're not also caught up into temptation. This is a biblical pattern that you do it in private, all with the hopes of restoration. That's seemingly what happened. Because Apollos goes on. It doesn't give us any indication. Luke speaks a fair amount about the nuances of this moment in history, which is a very brief stop in Ephesus, that Apollos goes on and his ministry continues. In verse 27, actually, let me pause there just for a second before I move on. When you think about Apollos, you know, we see in him a man who is eloquent, right? So he could speak well, and he was competent, like he was well-educated, he was energetic, and one of the things I would say as we think about our own lives, our own spiritual lives, is that we can't mistake competence with completion. So you may continue, you should continue to, to know and grow in your knowledge of, of the Lord Jesus and of the Bible, but we can never mistake competence with completion. I'll say it this way. I shared it this way with a group of pastors in our network uh, in Colorado a couple months ago, that for the Christian, progress is never a thing of the past. 
If you're a believer in Jesus, like progress persists in your life. It's never something you, you did back in the past that somehow you've moved beyond. No, like all of us continue to need to grow and, and walking in the spirit and applying biblical truth to our hearts. So don't mistake competence with completion and don't think that progress is a thing of the past. Every single one of us must always maintain an allowance for people to pull us aside and speak to us more rightly the things of God. And the Bible is replete with examples of receiving counsel from people. The proverb says a lot about it. One proverb, 11, 14, says, where there's no guidance, a people falls. But in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. And we live in a cultural moment, especially with social media, where we love celebrity. Like, people are famous just for being famous. Like, namely the Kardashian family. Like, we still don't know what they do. And they're famous beyond belief, right? But we love celebrity, the dynamics of celebrity. So you take someone like Apollos, who's eloquent, who's competent, who's energetic, and that's immediately going to provide a platform to become, in people's eyes, a celebrity. And unfortunately, the church, the local church, is not immune to this. You see it all over the place. I'm listening to a podcast right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Some of you may have, those of you younger may not know Mars Hill. Mars Hill is a massive church in Seattle led by Mark Driscoll. And it grew to tens of thousands of people in I think maybe some 40 plus locations. And Mark Driscoll was the primary teacher of that ministry. And initially, he started with a heart for plurality, like multiple pastors, like I'm just one of many pastors. But the more his platform grew, the more he started listening to his own press and the more he became the celebrity of Mars Hill. And ultimately, that led to the demise of the church that grew to tens of thousands and almost overnight imploded. And so I think one thing we have to recognize, we have to recognize as a ministry, and then you have to recognize in your own life as people affirm gifts in you and maybe your platform grows for usability by God is there is only one celebrity and his name is Jesus. It's not you, it's not me. There's only one who deserves the fame and the credit. It's not you, it's not me. It's the Lord Jesus. If there's anything good in us, anything fruitful that comes from us, it's owing to his remarkable grace in our lives, amen? It's not because of us. We've been saved by grace. Like anything beyond nothing is grace to us. Like we deserve nothing from God except his judgment. He's given us just profoundly wondrous measures of grace in our lives. And one of the things I celebrated most coming back from sabbatical, we were gone for six weeks. I didn't preach for six or seven weeks. And the other three pastors, Chris and Jason and Bill, led well. And one of the things I celebrate the most is I was, I was meeting, actually a couple weeks ago, Matthias, I think I was meeting with you. And Matthias and others who are newer to the church during the season where we weren't here, just remarking on the fact that the church was, was led and shepherded well and even seamlessly without me here. And that's, that's a praise to God. Like, because this, this thing is not, this church is not about me just because I have the most microphone time. It's not dependent upon me. The church grows on the foundation of the gospel. Like, it's about Jesus. It's not about me or Chris or Jason or Bill or any other teacher or evangelist or fill in the blank. 
Jesus is the only one worthy of the fame. So we do well to follow Apollos' example that although he was competent, although he was eloquent, although he was energetic, although he had plans, he seemingly submitted to the people around him really, really well. It seems like he listened to the, the encouragement and counsel of the things he didn't understand completely. But then also, it's really subtle, but look at the text with me in verse 27. Because it's, it's a really brief section, right? This is, verse, this is verses 24 through 28, four or five verses. And so in this one verse, I don't think Luke is just kind of filling up time. In verse 27, he says, and when he wished, this is Apollos, when he wished to cross to Achaia, back to Corinth, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. What's the big deal? Well, a lot of times what will happen is you take someone who's competent, take someone who's eloquent, someone who's energetic, and they have a desire to do something, you know what happens? They just go do it. Their desire becomes their doing like that. Their wishing will become their wandering remarkably fast. But notably for Apollos, a competent, eloquent, energetic guy, there's something about this Luke drawn attention like he wished to go. He wanted to go to Corinth, but what happens next? What we see next is that, that the believers around him were involved. They encouraged him to go. They even write a letter to the church in Corinth to welcome him. And I think we do well, like in our own decision-making in life, certainly if you have a heart for missions, to not disconnect yourself from the local church and from the people around you that can give you counsel and encourage you in the things that you feel desirous for. We live in such an independent society that we want to kind of chart our own path, and somehow that seems more fulfilling. But even on the mission field, there continues to be a need for interconnectedness and community and accountability, and I think Apollos lived that out remarkably well in light of what we see as his giftedness. The Christian life is one of interdependence, not independence. And humility ultimately is a pathway to what what you might call exaltation. Luke chapter 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Because what do we see in Apollos next? Well, in this patient receiving of counsel, his connectedness with other believers, like he goes, he goes back to Corinth and his ministry is so significant, I mentioned it last week, he becomes one of the primary figures that people try to line up behind, sinfully. Some people wanna say, I'm of Apollos, I'm on Apollos' squad. Some people say, I'm of Peter, some I'm of Paul. But his influence is so significant that people wanted to line up behind him. Why is that important? Because the pathway to me, based on this short description, was, was paved with stones of humility that he walked upon to a fruitful plane of ministry. I think that will always be the case. Why? Because God opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. That will always be the case, forever and ever. And Paulus went to Corinth, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, again, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let me just briefly close with this. Now you might be in the room this morning and maybe you've been to church your whole life. Maybe you feel like there's some measure of knowledge of the message. Maybe you've responded somehow. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you responded at a youth camp. I don't know. But maybe you know, like in the quietness of your own heart, there's an unsettledness to your heart and your soul. Like you don't know your position before God. There's something within you that's wrestling with, like how do I make myself right with God? 
But here's the very brief description of what the Bible says about our condition. That the only one, the only thing that can make you right with God is Jesus Christ. Is that he lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. You and I have broken God's law in many ways and over many days. But Jesus was born and he lived the perfect life that you and I could never live. As a result, he was able to be a perfect sacrifice. So when he died on the cross, he didn't die because he was a sinner, but he died for sinners. He became sin, 2 Corinthians 5 says. Everything that we are and all of our sinning, Jesus became when he hung on the cross. And everything that he is, namely perfect in righteousness, through this transaction of faith, we believe in him, he gets all my sin, I get all his righteousness, and I'm acceptable before God, part of his family. This mysterious, wonderful, blessed transaction. And so my call to you this morning is don't rely on tomorrow to make your decision. Don't trust it somehow, maybe a year, two, three, four, after college, after X, Y, Z, you're going to get serious about considering the claims of Jesus. You don't have a guarantee for tomorrow. God has brought you here this morning to hear the life-changing message that Jesus is Lord. And he saves those who look to him in saving faith. They lay down all their trying and trust in his righteousness alone. So do that today. The church family, if, if you're among those in this room who trusted Jesus already, then we've got a job to do. And we get the joyful privilege of being his witnesses to testify of his greatness and his glory. And we get the, also the joy of walking in the fact that it is well with our souls in this life and the life to come. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray and we'll sing one last song before we head out of here. God, you are, you are great and greatly to be praised. And you deserve our complete surrender and devotion. And I think when we take the time to be still and pause, we know that there are ways in which our lives aren't completely surrendered, aren't completely devoted to you. So I pray that for your people, for those who are in Christ this morning, where we feel the gravity of those things, where we feel exposed, I pray that we'd run quickly to the, the exposing and healing light of Jesus, the one who knows us completely yet loves us fully. If there's anyone in this room, God, I don't have the words to say. I don't have the energy or the passion or the intelligence to try to convince them enough to, to surrender to Christ. But I pray that through your spirit, you do, do a work in them, in our hearts to, to make Jesus the satisfaction of our souls, that we stop chasing the things in the world that we, that we believe are going to bring us satisfaction and joy, that we find it in you. Thank you that because of Christ, um, that we receive mercy, which is you have withheld from us what we deserve, namely your judgment, and that through him you've also given us your grace. Uh, you've given us what we don't deserve. You've given us righteousness and acceptance, reconciliation with you, and blessings beyond measure. So help us to sing this song uh, as if we believe it. Help us to go from this place with a renewed sense of purpose in our lives to make much of you in this world, in the places where you give us influence. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. We'll sing.